We'll be looking at um, at Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, so we'll skip ahead a couple chapters from where we were last week. Now, when you, when you imagine the void, when you think of the void, the void of space, for example, the void of, of a vacuum, probably not much comes to mind, right? Because that's precisely what the void is. It's nothing, right? When we imagine the void of space, we think typically of a very hostile environment where we're surrounded by blackness, with maybe only small distant dots of, of light emitted from stars light years away. Now imagine the horror of being lost in the void, of floating away helplessly into the darkness. Now the void terrifies us, at least it terrifies me, because I know that I can't thrive in a void. I can't even survive in the void. We're not made for the void, for the emptiness of space. The void needs to be filled with something, right? It needs to be filled with light, with atmosphere, with land, with water, with plant life. The void of space doesn't work well for us. And in the same way, life in the God void doesn't work very well for us either. In fact, life in the God void doesn't work at all. We'll be seeing that more as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 today. So as we study this passage, we're going to learn a little bit more about life in the God void. So let's take a look at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. I'll read this passage for you. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Before we go any further, I invite you to a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we pray that as we study this text today, that you would illuminate the meaning and the truth of this passage by the power of your spirit, And allow us to apply this passage, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in the book of Ephesians, as we saw last week, we have the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. This was a city that was living in the God void. And if you want to understand more about the circumstances surrounding the development and growth of the church in Ephesus, then I encourage you to, at some point, go back and look at Acts 19, where it explains how this church grew. Now, as we think about life in the God void today, I want to look at three ways in which the God void affects us. Okay, three points today. The first point, life in the God void breeds madness. Life in the God void breeds madness. Madness. Now, for those of you who have read my book, Insanity, God and the Theory of Knowledge, you might recognize where I'm going here. 
I make a distinction there between madness in the sense that we, we see in the media, this kind of insanity, and then madness as intellectual futility. So when I, when I talk about madness here, when I say that life in the God void breeds madness, I'm not thinking of, of, of people running wild-eyed and, and naked through the streets, foaming at the mouth or that kind of thing. I'm not talking about psychiatric patients tied up in, in straitjackets and locked away at the ends of dark hospital corridors. I'm not necessarily thinking of raving lunatics trying to shovel the reflection of the moon out of a lake or building fences around trees so that the trees don't escape or that kind of thing, the thing we typically <laughs> think about when we, when we imagine insanity or madness. So again, I'm referring to intellectual futility, intellectual futility. Now, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this to the church in Ephesus, reminds his readers in verse 17. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. But it's interesting the way he begins this passage. I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. I insist on it in the Lord. This isn't just a gentle reminder. Paul insists, he asserts, he declares, he testifies in the name of the Lord that futile thinking has absolutely no place in the life of a believer. Now, Paul is reminding his readers that life in the God void breeds madness, futility, and meaninglessness. And he seems to be echoing here the words of the Ecclesiast. If you go back to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, this is a book of wisdom. It's around the, you'll find it in, in the wisdom literature with Proverbs and Psalms and those kinds of books. But the book of Ecclesiastes was written by this Ecclesiast, or in, in Hebrew it would have been the Koaleth. And the Koaleth was a, was a philosopher or teacher who assembled the people to teach them. Okay? And his big idea, really the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes, is that when you remove God from reality, when you take God out of the picture, you're left with vanity, meaninglessness, futility, that kind of thing. Life under the sun, life in a world devoid of God, is frustrating, it's vain, it's vaporous. That's the reality of life in the God void. So those who live without God are living in intellectual futility. But I want to be clear that when, the, when Paul talks about futile thinking here in verse 17 or the corruption of the self in verse 22, he's not trying to suggest that the godless pagans of Ephesus were stupid by any means, okay? He's not saying that unbelievers are idiots, okay? In fact, we know that first century Ephesus was a large metropolitan area that attracted a lot of very bright people from all over the, the, the Roman Empire. This was a city full of entrepreneurs and philosophers and politicians and skilled craftsmen. And again, you can go back to Acts uh, chapter 19 if you want to understand more about the realities of the city of Ephesus. But these were intelligent people. And when we look around at modern Evergreen, when we look at modern Denver, we see very intelligent unbelievers, many of whom are very successful, very skilled at what they do. And so this madness, this kind of futile thinking, means a lot more than just stupidity. Okay? It means the inability to see the world correctly. And that's life in the God void. When we don't know God correctly, we don't interpret the world correctly, and then we don't see reality correctly. Now, there are a lot of examples of this kind of thing. Sometimes we, uh, we talk about um, interpreting the world or seeing the world through rose-tinted glasses or that kind of thing. It's an unrealistic optimism. When somebody sees the world through rose-tinted glasses, uh, la vie en rose, as they say in, in, in France, 
it's this, uh, this false vision of reality. Everything appears better than it, than it really is. Or we talk about this as well sometimes when we think of somebody um, having too much to drink, right? They put on their beer goggles, right? You've, you've heard that, that <laughs> expression. At that point, all clear thinking has been, has been expunged. And suddenly, really hideous people start to look really attractive, right? That's life with the, with the beer goggles on. So it's a false vision of reality. Now, not long ago, I started wearing contact lenses. A lot of you remember me with, with glasses. I still wear them from time to time, but I wanted to give contacts uh, a try. And when I first started wearing contacts, this is a, a couple months ago, actually, I found that my vision was was blurred. I couldn't see anything. It was really uncomfortable. In fact, it was worse with the contacts in than it was before. And after some discomfort for a day or two, my wife, being more intelligent than, than I, suggested that perhaps I had mixed them around and put them in the wrong eyes. <laughs> and of course, that, that, that's impossible. How could I have made a mistake like that? I checked the labels on the boxes. I put them, I was very careful to put them in the right compartment. But I switched them around, and sure enough, yes, she was right. I put them in, in the wrong eyes. But that's kind of what, what the Apostle Paul is telling us to avoid here. Reality with the lens cap on. You see, reality out of focus. We need the right lenses in order to see the world rightly. We need a Christian worldview. And Paul insists that we put off futile thinking with all of its madness, with the insanity of this kind of worldview. Because when we fail to hold a biblical or Christian worldview, we end up with any number of worldviews that don't reflect reality. And this kind of godless madness is part of the human condition when you take God out of the picture. Now, Blaise Pascal, who I've referenced before, he was a 17th century French Enlightenment philosopher, mathematician, inventor, and a devout Christian, said this of, of, of man, of mankind. He said that men are so inevitably mad that not to be mad would be to add a mad twist to madness. Men are so inevitably mad that not to be mad would be to add a mad twist to madness. That is the human condition. Outside of Christ, without the transformation of the mind that comes from relationship with God through faith in Christ, we're all raving madmen. Futile thinking, you see. Life in the God void breeds madness. Life in the God void breeds futile thinking. But secondly, and worse still, life in the God void incites spiritual ignorance. Life in the God void incites spiritual ignorance. So take a look at verse 18. Verse 18, we see that not only does life in the God void lead to futile thinking, darkened understanding, that, that kind of thing, but consequently, our inability to see reality clearly makes us ignorant of the God who is himself the source of ultimate reality. We have an ignorance of God and who he is. Now, spiritual ignorance and the hardening of the heart separate humans from the God of the universe. Unrepented hearts are hardened, they're inward-focused, unrepented hearts in their spiritual ignorance attempt to replace God with man. That's what we do when God, again, is removed from the picture. They attempt to make man into God. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche, I'm going to quote some philosophers today. So, Friedrich Nietzsche, a 19th century German philosopher, known for his, uh, his remarks, God is dead. You've, you've heard that before. But, but Nietzsche said, and I quote, 
I will now disprove the existence of all gods. If there were gods, how could I bear not to be a god? If there were gods, how could I bear not to be a god? Consequently, there are no gods. But the reality is, this is exactly what we do. We make ourselves into gods. We can't bear the thought of not being God. And we live in spiritual ignorance. This is why so many religions exist today. In fact, I would say that almost all secular religion, and I do believe that there are secular religions, but secular religion is an attempt to put ourselves in the place of God, to create a salvation that's dependent on us, on our own righteousness. And so you see people who claim to be atheists trying to save themselves in a way by putting themselves in God's place. Secular humanism is a good example of this. The secular humanist sees himself as a human god sent to redeem human history by improving man. If I improve man, I will somehow justify myself, save myself. So it's a a man-centered worship. Radical environmentalism does this. The radical environmentalist who sees the earth as his god ironically views himself as the savior or redeemer of his own earth, his own god. He, he, He switches the roles. Here he says that the earth is my God, yet he is the the redeemer, the savior of this earth. It's a man-glorifying religion. Radical feminism does this. Okay, And I'm referring to this 20th century movement that began out of the continental thinkers in Europe when when I'm referring to feminism here. But radical feminism attempts to throw off this kind of oppressive, uh, patriarchal, masculine God of traditional religion only to replace God with woman. And so it's a man-centered or woman-centered worldview. So going back again to, to Nietzsche's question, if there were gods, how could I bear not to be a god? Well, the answer is you can't. You can't bear not to be a god. That's why the world is full of idolatry. Without God, man becomes man-centered. Life in the god void incites spiritual ignorance. Now, many of you know that I do a lot of apologetics in our ministry in Lyon. And apologetics is basically the defense of the Christian faith using uh, arguments or other means to to show the the truth of the Christian faith, being prepared to give an answer to those who ask you for the hope you have in Christ. And so to do this, oftentimes me and the pastor and several other young people from our church will go out to usually the universities and we'll conduct surveys and things like that just to spark conversation. What do you think about about God. Do you believe in God? Why not? What are your objections? What is your, 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 your background of belief? That kind of thing. And one of the reasons we do these kinds of surveys too is so that we have, uh, so that we understand what people are thinking. We can respond to the objections. We can host debates or conferences that address some of the concerns or, or questions that people have. So the idea is to exchange with people, to, to, to understand their, their thinking, to share the gospel with them. And I remember on one, one occasion, we were at the University of Lyon. Uh, I think it was Lyon 2 or 3, I can't remember. The, the universities in Lyon, it's just basically University 1, 2, and 3. They don't really have any fancy names. But we were right along the Rhone River where these old buildings were located. And we're standing outside of the College of Philosophy and Humanities. And oftentimes you'll see students congregated there to have their cigarette break or their coffee or whatever. So we were chatting with, with a young man who was a first-year philosophy student. And because we had philosophy in common, we started talking about some of these, these important questions. And I remember at one point the pastor of the church, who was with me at the time, handed this young man an invitation to one of the debates we were hosting on the question of the existence of God. 
He just simply handed him this, this invitation. And I saw a kind of nervousness come over this young man as he reacted. And he went into a rant, the student, went into a rant against the Christian faith. And as he offered this almost seething excoriation of Christianity, he was shaking with rage. You could see physically he was that upset. The mere idea of a holy creator God was so offensive to him, he could barely contain his anger. And of course, this doesn't characterize everyone we talk to, but it gives you an example of this kind of hostility toward the truth. And at one point, I remember the pastor pointed this out to me. We looked up and right there above the, above the main entrance to the university, carved in stone were the words, connaître le monde, connaître le monde, which in, in English means know the world. This is the slogan, the, the, the goal of this university, know the world exchange ideas, reflect on things, use some critical thinking, engage the world. And yet you see this is the very thing this young man couldn't do. He wouldn't do it. How in the world can you ever hope to know the world or anything about the world if you don't know God correctly, if you don't understand the bigger picture? And this is an example of hard-hearted ignorance about God. You see, the world says... Nothing is certain, and yet it's certain that there's certainly no certainty. Strong convictions are a menace and a danger. That's extremism, yet it believes this with unshakable and almost violent conviction. Skepticism is a virtue to be upheld, spews the world, and yet it fails to be skeptical of its own skepticism. And the world belches out the poisonous claim that there's absolutely no absolutes, that truth is truthfully non-existent, and again and again, these kind of self-stultifying dictums are mindlessly chanted until the chanter believes the lie of his own making, and he's driven further into madness, further into despair, further into ignorance, you see. That's life in the God void. Now, one of our neighbors once told us, and I, I imagine I've shared this, this story with you before, but one of our neighbors had said to us at one time, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in God. I'm a Christian and I don't believe in God. You see the absurdity of this, right? I'm a dentist and I don't believe in teeth. <laughs> I'm a mother, but I don't believe in children. You see the problem there. We meet people who say these kinds of things. It's, again, it's ignorance about the world. We hear people say, I'm a non-practicing Christian. You hear that probably all the time up here in Evergreen people who are spiritual, but they, they're not religious or they don't go to church, that kind of thing. I'm a non-practicing Christian. Well, isn't that similar to being a non-practicing vegetarian then? I'm a vegetarian, but I eat meat all the time. I mean, it, does, it doesn't make sense. You see the absurdity of this kind of... It, it's, it's laughable. It's, it's ridiculous. And people say all kinds of ridiculous things because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And because of the internet, I'll add that in there as well. <laughs> now this leads us to the third point, okay? To the third problem. Life in the God void awakens immorality. Now look at verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Says verse 19. When we fail to know God, we're unable to know his world. When we're unable to know his world, we're unable to respond correctly to his world. When we have the wrong spiritual glasses on, when we have our theological contacts in the wrong eyes, 
when we don't interpret the world correctly, we end up celebrating moral perversion. We're given over to sensuality, to unwholesome desires of the flesh. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing here again to believers in the city of Ephesus. This is a city where idolatry, where the worship of the goddess Artemis were rampant. Again, look at Acts 19 and what happened there with the silversmiths who were building these or constructing these idols to the goddess Artemis. When Paul went into the city and proclaimed the gospel, people threw out their idols. It caused an uproar in the city. So this was a city where, where idolatry was rampant, um, where sexual perversion was common. This is a city where sin was celebrated. Okay, lust for impurity was part of the culture, just like in America today, just like in Europe today. Now, in verse 19, the NIV uses the terms sensuality and impurity, okay, to describe the, the conduct of pagans. The King James Version, if you go back a few hundred years, it'll use terms like lasciviousness and uncleanliness. If you look at the Holman Bible or other versions, you'll see terms like promiscuity and greed, okay? These may not seem like particularly strong Terms. They sound like minor misconduct, perhaps, or maybe social impropriety. But understand that the Apostle Paul here is referring to a worldly way of living. He's referring to conduct that completely opposes and undermines the God of the universe. He's talking about moral filth, okay? And as Christians, we slip very easily back into this kind of thinking when we replace a biblical worldview with a pagan worldview, We waste hours of our time. We all do it. We've all done it. We waste hours of our time on on social media, gossiping and breaking commandments and lusting for more, right? We devour the mind-numbing filth of films and television programs that are so sexually explicit and filled with gratuitous violence. And then we claim, it's not a big deal. I've I've done it too. It's not a big deal. Don't be so legalistic. Don't worry about it. It's, it, it. Who cares? It's just nudity every five minutes. It's just violence all the time. Not a big deal. You see, we, we try to justify these kinds of things. We support and sometimes even simply ignore political causes that contradict God's law. But these are the marks of someone who has lost all moral sensitivity. You can walk into a hospital today at least I think here in the United States, and in one room find a team of doctors trying desperately to save the life of an unborn child. You go down the hall to an adjacent room or maybe just across the street and you'll find another team of so-called doctors destroying the life, terminating the life of another child, an unwanted child. This is madness, moral insensitivity, indulging in the chronic decadence of consumerism while ignoring the needs of those around you. This is madness. Reinterpreting scripture according to 21st century secular tomfoolery in order to justify any perverse sexual practice we can imagine, this is madness. Life in the God void awakens immorality. Now imagine a man with severe constipation who... You know, actually, I'm going to skip that one. We're going to throw that one out. (laughs) Instead, I want you to imagine a man with severe leprosy. We'll go there, okay? Imagine a man with severe leprosy, okay? He's completely numbed by his disease. His body's bandaged up. He's already lost his, his fingers and toes have rotted away. So he's bandaged himself up, trying to hold his body together, Okay, his leprosy has done such damage to his body that he can't even feel a thing. 
he's become comfortable in a way in this world without feeling. He doesn't feel the realities around him. He's oblivious to the fact that his limbs are rotting away and falling from his body. Having lost all sensitivity, he's ignorant to his physical state. And life in the God void produces insensitivity to our moral state, our moral condition. We become numbed to our disease by our disease. Now, if you want to numb yourself to God, if you want to numb yourself to God's law, it's really quite simple. It's very easy to do. If you want to live in the God void, then simply stop reading Scripture. That's a good place to start. Stop reading Scripture. Don't even think about God's Word. Don't go to a church that reads God's Word, that studies God's Word. Forget about that. Uh, If you want to live in the God void, then stop attending church altogether. Right? Abandon the assembly. Avoid Christian fellowship. Don't let believers hold you accountable. If you want to live in the God void, then stop thinking clearly. Right? Stop asking questions. Spend as much time as possible on your smartphone or on social media avoiding reality, wasting time. If you want to live in the God void, then listen to the godless worldly culture around you. Worry more about what the world thinks of you than what God expects of you. That's life in the God void. Now, we all know how easy it is to live in the God void. But we want to move beyond that. We want to move beyond spiritual laziness. As Christians, we don't live in the God void, okay? We live in the fullness of Christ. Now, we'll end our time here looking at briefly at verses 20 through 24, where we see the other side of of things. Verses 20 through 24 reminds us that you, Christians, did not come to know Christ that way. So how do we move further from the void and into, into the light, into the fullness of Christ? Now, these applications are fairly straightforward, fairly basic, but these are things we need to remind ourselves of every, every day. First of all, we, we need to know our God. We need to start by knowing God. Okay, this is verses 20 through 21. And how do we, how do we know God? I think knowing God is a lot more than simply um, assenting to God's existence intellectually. This is a lot more than just intellectual assent. Because, you see, we already have noticia. We already have a concept. We have, we have these realities that we've read, that we've studied. We can assent to that fairly easily. But the knowledge that we have must become personal, right? It needs to become relational. And so how do we know God? Well, by knowing Christ, by living each day of our lives in repentance and in gratitude for the gospel of our salvation. We know God through repentance, by turning from sin, by humbling ourselves before the Christ who gave his life so that we could live. So again, to get out of the God void, we want to start by knowing God, and we do that through knowing Christ, through faith in him. If we want to move again further from this God void, we need to know the Bible. Okay, another fairly obvious thing, right? We need to know Scripture. Verses 22 through 24 talk about this. It reminds us that we were taught in regard to Christ. We were taught in regard to righteousness. And where does this teaching about Christ come from? See, we don't have the apostles with us today. We don't have the Apostle Paul visiting us here and teaching us about Christ. So we go to God's Word. We go to God's revelation. To know the Bible, we simply open it up and read it, right? These are the words handed down by the apostles, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
Knowing God's Word means knowing the truth, knowing how to think carefully and critically about what God has said to us and how to apply that in our world. Now imagine having spent your life in a cold, dark prison cell. You've been locked away without light, without hope. But one day the door is opened and and you're told you're free to go. You're released. But instead of leaving, you stay there huddled in the corner of your cell and you never pass through the door. Now this is exactly what we do when we express faith in Christ. We're released from our bonds. We're released from sin and from death. And yet we fail to grow in his word. We're free, but we're not doing anything about it. We're not growing in his word. We're not letting the word of God transform us into truth seekers, truth knowers. And this brings us to the third application. So first we want to know our God through Christ, through faith in him. We want to know God's word, the Bible. And we need to bless the world. We then need to do something. We need to respond to the moral condition of our world. Christians bring light into dark places. Christianity is transformative in nature. Wherever you go as a believer, you are bearing grace. You are bearing light and salt. You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. You are a filler of the void. Now, I realize that we have not always done a very good job at this kind of thing as Christians. And many will disparage Christian history. They they will say, they, they will point out, for example, the damage done by Christians in the past. They will point to corruption and abuse and inquisition and crusades and and those kinds of things. That's a reality of of Christian history. I realize that. But we need to remember that when you critique a, a faith, when you critique a worldview or a religion, you don't just look at the lifestyle of the adherence of that worldview. Now, that is important. The, the adherence of that worldview should reflect the teaching, the foundation of that worldview. But you also need to go back and look at that foundation. You need to look at the source documents. You need to go back to the foundation of that worldview. You don't just look at what Christians do. You also need to think about what Christians are supposed to do. A true follower of Christ will live consistently with the teaching of Christ. Okay, So we shouldn't be too quick to throw out Christian history and what Christians have done. Okay, A lot of things have been done in the name of Christ that were not biblical, that were not worthy of Christ. But furthermore, more importantly, we shouldn't underestimate the good that Christianity has done in this world. You could argue that modern democracy, that public education, that ethical and social reforms, that hospitals and schools and universities and thousands of years of artistic advancement from from music to architecture are due to Christians. These are things accomplished by Christians as sanctioned by Scripture and for the glory of God. So we shouldn't forget about the good that Christians have done and the good that Christians are doing today, respecting the authorities that God has placed over us, praying for them, paying your debts, treating strangers with kindness, showing honesty in business transactions, loving your spouse, providing for your family, working hard, giving to those in need, protecting life, caring for God's creation, maintaining your property because our God is a God of order, not of disorder. These are all things that we can do to bless our world, to transmit grace to the world. Ephesians chapter 1, going back a ways here, Ephesians 1 verse 23 reminds us that as Christ's church, as Christ's body, we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When Christ enters into the picture, 
there's no longer a void, you see. When, when Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and loving kindness to us enter into the picture, there's no longer a void. When we accept his promise of salvation by faith and live as new creations in true righteousness and holiness, there's no longer a void. In Christ, the void is filled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for what we've learned from this study of Ephesians 4. We thank you, Lord, that we have come to know you through the transmission of of your word, the truth, the gospel. I pray, Lord, that for each one of us here, the gospel would continue to transform us daily, that we would believe and follow you daily in faith. Help us, Lord, to be transformative in this world, to engage this world with truth, to be bearers of light, bearers of truth, fillers of the void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.